Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs here at New York Historical, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I always say it's spectacular, but once in a blue moon, I tell you why. And I think these are the greatest seats in the world. I hope you're comfortable. I, I mean, they're great for your back. They're great support. And if, if you will notice, there's a little plaque on the top of the seat. Some have some names and some are blank. So we, we have a wonderful opportunity for you. <laughs> and we'll have staff outside to help you with questions. Um, if you pick up our brochure, Jim, may I have the brochure, please? The brochure has information to look into this wonderful way to support the institution by having your name or having the memory of someone's name on that seat. So onward and forward now. Just want to tell you about the exhibitions on view. We have a wonderful exhibition, Lincoln and the Jews, which explores the relationships and interactions between Abraham Lincoln and his Jewish friends and associates. It's a wonderful exhibition. Also on view is Chinese American, Exclusion Inclusion, Audubon's Aviary, The Final Flight, and Freedom Journey, 1965 photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March by Stephen Summerstein. Wonderful group of exhibitions for you to see. If you're not already a member, we, we encourage you again to pick up the brochure, all kinds of information, our programs coming up. If you become a member, you'll be a, it's a wonderful way to support all of these programs and all the things we do here. So we always like to ask at this point, how many members do we have with us in the room tonight? Almost everybody. I, I won't tell you how many aren't members like I usually do, I usually say, two aren't, or three and a half aren't. But we invite you. We, we, are, we are thrilled to have the members here. We really appreciate your support. And those of you who come and join us and are not members, we still consider you part of the family. So tonight's program, Toward Appomattox, and I'm looking for Jim to take the brochure away from me. Now I'm done with the brochure. Thank you. Toward Appomattox, The Last Gasp, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his wonderful support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. He is with us tonight. He's right over there. Let's thank him. He also supports, he sponsors our classic film series on Friday nights. He is just wonderful. I can't thank you enough. All of us, we can't thank you enough. I'd also like to recognize one of our trustees with us tonight, Carl Mangus. Great fan of the programs. Thank you, Carl, for all your work and support. And we have a lot of Chairman's Council members with us. We thank all of you for all your work and support as well. The program tonight will last an hour and include an answer, a question and answer session. We invite audience members to two standing mics in the aisles. 
We ask you to do that so that everyone in the audience can hear you, the speakers can hear you, and we do record this, and it goes on our website so the rest of the world can hear you as well. And we also invite you following the program to join us for a book signing with tonight's speakers. The museum store is on the, the uh, 77th Street side, and they'll be signing on the Central, West, Central Park West side. We are thrilled to welcome back William C. Davis, the author or editor of more than 50 books in the field of Civil War and Southern history, including his most recent book, Crucible of Command, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, The War They Fought, The Peace They Forged. He is a three-time winner of the Jefferson Davis Award for Books on Confederate History and a recently retired professor of history and director of programs of the Virginia Center for Civil War Studies at Virginia Tech. He was the on-camera senior consultant for 52 episodes of the A&E Network History Channel series, Civil War Journal, as well as several other productions on public television and the BBC. We're also pleased to welcome back James McPherson, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History Emeritus at Princeton University, and one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. He is the best-selling author of numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He is a two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. His most recent book is The War That Forged Nation, Why the Civil War Still Matters. Our moderator for the evening is Harold Holzer, the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society, Chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation, and a recipient of the National Humanities Medal. He is the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War, including Lincoln and the Power of the Press, which was awarded the 2015 Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize. Mr. Holzer served as a content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln and his book, The Civil War Link to, let me do this again, okay. <laughs> you heard that, okay. Mr. Holzer served as a content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln, and we had him here speak. We had the film, and Harold spoke with Tony Kushner. It was a great night. Sorry you all missed it, I'm, no. okay. And his book, the Civil War in 50 Objects tells the story of the Civil War through the use of objects from the New York Historical Society's collection. So before we begin, we just always ask everyone if you have an electronic device, a cell phone on, that you please turn it off for the evening. And now, finally, please welcome our wonderful guests. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. Um, and thanks to all the friends and members of uh, the Historical Society who have been here, literally, some of you, in these programs from Bull Run to Appomattox tonight. Um, don't worry, tonight we may be talking about the end of the Civil War in line with the anniversary of the surrender, but Dale promises me that it won't be the end of the series. We'll reboot in more ways than one, and we'll come back 
next season with some programs that are not key to an anniversary. That'll be a real test of interest. I hope you all, you all pull through <coughs> and um, come through and come to these uh, next events. We really do have the perfect historians to talk about the last days of the war and Appomattox. Um, Jim McPherson, who started the war with Battle Cry of Freedom. <laughs> and um, <coughs> deserves our applause, because Jim is the one who lifted our boat. <laughs> and um, by the way, the Wall Street Journal says of his new book that the essays shine distilling a lifetime of scrupulous scholarship. High praise and deserved. And Jack, who has literally been walking the path to Appomattox with both Grant and Lee, not only through a lifetime of writing, but with his new book, um, Crucible of Command, which, again, the Wall Street Journal praised as brilliant and balanced. That doesn't sound like you really that much. Well, Oh, it goes on to say sharp and opinionated. There. I, wrote, I wrote that. There we go. <laughs> I teased Jack and I have this repartee going, but it is, was one of the most brilliant reviews that the, I've seen, and we wish you all the best with the new book, which I hope you know, new books for you to get tonight, both worth your patronage. So let's start with the two uh, protagonists, the two main characters here, just a capsule description <clears throat> of who they are as we get to the beginning of 1865. And Jim, I'm going to give it to you to start with General Grant. All right. Well, General Grant in uh, 1865 was a relatively young, young man. He was born in 1822. So he was just in his uh, 43rd year uh, at the time of Appomattox. Uh, he had gone to West Point, graduated in 1843, right in the middle of his class. Uh, which was considerably lower than Lee graduated second, but considerably higher than Jefferson Davis, who had graduated <coughs> the bottom third of his class. Uh, Grant was unenthusiastic about West Point. He hadn't wanted to go, but his father made him go. Uh, he uh, spent a lot of his time there reading novels, riding horses. He was one of the best equestrians in the history of West Point, and that's what he excelled at. He loved horses. He loved animals. Uh, he uh, actually made his mark in the Mexican War, where he fought in most of the major battles, uh, was promoted to captain, uh, was assigned to the West Coast in the 1850s and um, uh, didn't like it, was depressed, uh, resigned from the Army in 1854. He hadn't seen his second child, who was born while he was out there. Uh, he may have done uh, an excessive amount of drinking while he was there because of his loneliness and depression. Tried to make a go of it as a farmer uh, near St. Louis in Missouri, but wasn't successful at that. Tried some other civilian occupations uh, after he had resigned from the Army in 1854. Wasn't successful at that. When the war started in 1861, he was in Galena, Illinois, uh, working in his father's uh, harness uh, shop, leather shop father was a tanner. Uh, Grant offered his services um, because of his experience in the Mexican War and his West Point uh, career. The government didn't seem interested in Grant's uh, offer of services, but uh, the governor of Illinois finally appointed him as colonel of a somewhat obstreperous Illinois regiment, and Grant began to prove his competence, his capabilities, by turning that regiment from a 
group of clodhopper farm boys into something quite efficient as a military machine. Um, he had the sponsorship of Elihu Washburn, a congressman from uh, Galena, Illinois. Grant was promoted to Brigadier General in August of 1861, partly because of Elihu Washburn's sponsorship. Uh, and uh, the rest is history, really. Uh, he becomes commander of the expedition that captures Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. He's promoted to uh, uh, Major General. He's surprised at Shiloh, but recovers uh, and wins that battle uh, and continues to move upward uh, until after the spectacular Union victory at Chattanooga in November of 1863. He has emerged as the foremost Union general. Uh, Congress creates the new office of Lieutenant General, three stars, grants appointed to that, makes his headquarters as general in chief in the field with the Army of the Potomac and enters into the titanic confrontation with Robert E. Lee that takes the two of them on April 9th, 1865, 150 years ago tomorrow uh, at Appomattox Courthouse. Jack, let's hear the Robert E. Lee story. <clears throat> Pretty much the same story. No. <laughs> um, Lee, Lee is almost a generation older than Grant. He's 15 years older. I'm sure you all know he's the son of General Lighthorse Harry Lee, one of the great heroes of the Revolution. So Lee starts his life with this, this tremendous tradition within his family. There seems never to have been much question that what he really wanted to be was a soldier from an early age. Even though he scarcely knew his father, the father left, essentially abandoned the family when Lee was about seven years old. So it's very interesting to try to track any kind of relationship in Robert E. Lee's mind with, with the father he never really knew. He does go to West Point. Contrary to popular mythology, he is not the only cadet ever to graduate with no demerits. In his own class, there were five others that year who graduated with no demerits, and that year there were 26 students who didn't get them. But there is no question that he never got any, and he still wound up being number two in his class. There was a fellow I know you've all heard of named Charles Mason. <laughs> who was always one point ahead of Lee in just about every class, who did nothing. He later resigned and, and did, did nothing in the military. Uh, Lee then spent a good many years in the peacetime army as an engineer, who, of course, is, as the, one of the top graduates. He got to choose his branch of service, and West Point in that era was designed primarily to produce engineers. Uh, he'll serve in, uh, at Fort Monroe. He'll serve in South Carolina. He'll serve in St. Louis. He'll have a fair bit to do with controlling the, the flow of the, of the Mississippi River there at St. Louis. It's, it's a dull life, but he seems to like it. When the war with Mexico comes along, Lee, like a number of other officers, was not entirely sure of the propriety of the conflict. He, he was not at all easy with how it had come about. But he certainly obeyed his, his duty, of course, and went off to the war. And while Grant gets into action earlier, Lee, in fact, will become one of the leading heroes of the war, in large part due to his being the protege of General Winfield Scott, who kind of identifies and selects Lee as his kind of soldier. And indeed he was. Lee looked like he had been poured in, into a uniform, ramrod straight, uh, you can understand why he never got any demerits. He was the perfect soldier. Back in the peacetime army, he eventually gets out of the engineers and winds up in the 2nd United States Cavalry. 
But as 1860 approaches, he's, he's a man really torn. He, like Grant, has no patience or interest in secession. He thinks this whole controversy has been brought on by radical politicians of the left and the right, both for their own selfish purposes. And, of course, he faces this tug of war within himself. What happens if Virginia should secede? What will he do? Uh, it's my view that contrary to popular mythology, there was never any question in Lee's mind what he would do. He did go through anguish about resigning from a service that was the joy of his life. He had really loved being a soldier. But there was never a question, I think, that if Virginia should secede, Lee would resign his commission rather than lead troops uh, against friends and family and birthright in Virginia. As soon as he resigns, he's made major general in charge of the Virginia State troops. He does not become a Confederate general for several weeks yet. And uh, at that period, he actually still has some hope that there may be some kind of compromise, something that can bring the two sections back together. As late as the summer of 1861, he will still refer to our distracted country, meaning all of it, not just the South. He, Jefferson Davis has great admiration for Lee and makes him one of his chief advisors, which means Lee is stuck being a desk soldier in Richmond. He does get a couple of early commands, one in South, one in West Virginia, which ends almost disastrously, and again in South Carolina later on. But he derives no glory, no, no great accolades for, for that, that service. In fact, he gets nicknames like Spades Lee, the King of Spades, Granny Lee. He's pretty disillusioned and disappointed. Jefferson Davis calls him back to Richmond, where again, he is, he's nominally general in chief, but he's really just a military advisor. And in June 1862, when Joseph E. Johnston, in, in a very propitious moment for the Confederacy, when Joseph E. Johnston is wounded and put out of action, <laughs> it's one of the best shots the Yankees ever fired from the Confederate <laughs> point of view. Uh, Lee is on hand. He's a full rank general officer. And Davis will give him the command. And of course, Lee will very shortly electrify the South with what became known as the Seven Days Campaigns, in which he saves Richmond, essentially, and drives McClellan's Army of the Potomac back down to Harrison's Landing and Fort Monroe. And thereafter, Lee almost can do no wrong in a series of really lightning uh, uh, campaigns. His second bull run, a second Manassas campaign, is less studied than most others, and in some ways is more brilliant and more daring than many of his others. Fredericksburg, then Chancellorsville, the great, you know, the, 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 probably the pinnacle of Confederate battlefield success in the East. And then 1864, when finally he faces Grant. There seems to be a feeling in the Confederacy, and I see it in the North as well, from about 1863 on, of an inevitability. When are Grant and Lee going to meet each other? They're each the best each side has got. And of course, it comes with the Overland Campaign in 1864, by which time Lee is old and feeling older. His eyesight's failing him somewhat. He can't read by candlelight after dark. His health is not good. His, he feels himself that his powers of concentration and memory aren't what they were. Lee, in many ways, is, a, uh, is almost a sad man, I think by the time he and Grant come up against each other. And I don't think he's all that optimistic, given the forces arrayed against them. But of course, if you follow the, the course of the, the Overland Campaign in 1864, Lee does a marvelous job. Uh, 
of keeping Grant at bay or at least forcing him to keep adjusting his own plans until finally he's bottled up in Petersburg from where he said himself at one point, if it comes down to a siege, it's only a matter of time. So I'm, I'm just going to show a couple of images here because we, for those of you who come to all of these programs, you know that we were discussing, just about to discuss Cold Harbor last time and didn't quite get to it. Here's, here's <clears throat> Grant in the field and a famous staged but still harrowing photograph of a burial detail at Cold Harbor in 64. And this amazing photograph, um, taken from the second floor of a house, of showing General Grant. <clears throat> I wonder if I have a pointer here. It's actually second floor of a church. Church, right. Massaponex Church. Massaponex. Here's Grant. Grant's Here's beneath the two trees. Right here. Yeah. And General Meade is here somewhere. At the end of the pew on the left. In the, there in, in the Amen hat. corner. There he is. All of them just sitting around as... All of this action is going by so quickly that the camera can't. So 64 is inconclusive, deadly, as we saw from that, that image of the Cold Harbor burial party, but in the end, inconclusive. And we get to uh, 65, and is a turning point March 2nd when uh, Sheridan triumphs against Jubal early in the Shenandoah? Well, I think in the Shenandoah, the turning point had really come earlier than that, and this was uh, sort of the dessert, or the coup d'etat, uh, the coup de grace, uh, at the Battle of Waynesboro, near Charlottesville. Uh, Early's army had been badly crippled uh, back in uh, Cedar Creek uh, on October 19th, and Sheridan was just mopping up in the valley before rejoining the uh, Army of the Potomac at Petersburg and becoming the kind of spearhead of Grant's final push. So uh, that March 2nd battle at Waynesboro <laughs> did pretty much uh, wipe out what was left of Confederate uh, presence in the Shenandoah Valley, but that had been um, virtually the case since the previous right. October. And, and we then have the beginning of I guess, the Petersburg campaign. This is, Jack, why don't you tell us what this is since you told me during rehearsal. Uh, it's Fort Stedman, I believe. Right. Uh, you can see, one thing, by the way, how all these West Point officers did learn about engineering. This is an engineer's war here at Petersburg, which then, as still today, was surrounded by miles of earthworks and fortifications like this. In the background, those, what you see that distant wall is made up of what are called gabions, which is, has a wonderful dictionary definition, a basket made of wicker with no bottom in it. <laughs> but it's what it is. You, you make this round cylinder of wicker and fill it with earth, turn it upside down, stack them one on top of the other, and they absorb cannon fire rather well, especially when they're, they're, they're covered with earth and, and the, the parapet in front of it is also covered. To the right is a bomb proof. There's a, maybe there's a place in there where ammunition is kept or something like that. This was a war for... 10 months there at Petersburg of digging and sweating and relatively little fighting. And that is the war that Lee knew, of course, that in the end he would not be able to win. But Lee is the aggressor at Fort Stedman. Lee is the aggressor at Fort Stedman. Grant has been steadily for, for months extending his left flank 
south and westward to try to cut off Lee's army from all remaining rail lines in and out of Richmond. By this time, there's only one left, and Lee knows it's either get out now or we will be encircled and trapped, and the Fort Sedman attack is an attempt to break through and penetrate Grant's lines in one point that might force him to withdraw or retract his lines enough to buy Lee and his army some more time. It's initially successful because Lee really concentrates a fairly considerable force considering what he has remaining at that point. But it's rather soon turned back. I think, I think if there's a turning point, it is uh, the attack on Fort Stedman and then the counterattack by the Union forces which... <laughs> Uh, regain Fort Stedman and capture several thousand Confederates. And that gives Grant the impetus to begin planning his final assault. Uh, it's, this takes place, Fort Stedman, on March 25th, right. 1865. And uh, by uh, April 1st uh, and April 2nd, a week later, Grant has uh, broken through. And Hartranft led, led the countercharge, didn't he? The counterattack. Hartranft was one of the, Hart, the commander of the Ninth Corps. Yes, I mentioned his name because he was in Division charge of the execution of the Lincoln conspirators. Of yes, Canada, just later a few on. months later. Mm -hmm. It's very odd. So, I want to I want to take us to Mr. Lincoln for a moment because he is uh, he's been sick for a few <clears> days or maybe even a few weeks with some kind of flu-like ailment and obviously much thinner than he had been. This is a March 5th photograph. I'm, uh, yeah, March 5th photograph. And um, he wants to get into the action. He wants to see the end of the war. I always found that to be quite, quite an interesting phenomenon. Why do you suppose he wants to be there? It's just aside from curiosity. Well, he is commander-in-chief of the United States Army. And the United States Army appears to be on the verge of uh, final victory. Uh, it's um, not unusual for the commander-in-chief to want to be present, to be part of this. Actually, it was Grant who invited Lincoln to come and visit his headquarters. Supposedly at the instruction of the Secretary of War, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I'm sure Stanton knew that Lincoln right. wanted to do that. And Lincoln was actually back at Grant's headquarters when the attack on Fort Stedman took place, and he came after the Union counterattack had uh, succeeded in closing the lines again, uh, he rode forward and, and uh, rode over the battlefield uh, on, on March 25th. And he remained uh, in, w with the Army and, and with Grant uh, until and even after the final breakthrough on April 2nd and visited Richmond two days later on April 4th. And as background, this is not an aberrant a visit. Of course, he's, he's in the front lines in 1864 during Early's assault on Washington. Right. He spent 42 days of his presidency with the armies over four years. Eleven times he visited the Army of the Potomac. What about Davis and his... I mean, obviously, he's not going to come to the front lines yeah. of this particular moment. No, but, not in this instance. But he visited but the Army quite a bit. Especially right? in 1862, when Richmond was so under threat from McClellan's advance up the peninsula, Davis rode down to the Army every day. For, for weeks. Uh, in part, it was to get information because Joseph E. Johnston was not telling him anything. The only way that D Davis found out that Johnston had pulled beyond the Chickahominy River was that one day he rode to the Army and he didn't have to ride as far as he'd written the day before. <laughs> um, so he has a very, very similar interest, though Davis, of course, still fancying himself a military man at heart, I think, 
had that sort of additional right. uh, um, impetus. But chiefly, he wanted to be there to make sure something was going on. I have a, an image of Mary Lincoln here in her widow's weeds because I suppose in, in some ways, had it not been for Mary's breakdown on, these tri on this trip, <coughs> Lincoln might have actually stayed through the Appomattox campaign. But she had problems with Mrs. Grant and problems with Mrs. Ord. And we might as well tell that sad story. It's not military, but it's human interest, as they say. Uh, well, um, Lincoln rode out to review the troops. I forget the exact date, but it was in, in March. Um, and uh, Mary stayed behind, but uh, came forward a little bit later. And Lincoln was riding next to uh, Mrs. Ward, the wife of uh, one of Grant's generals. And, uh, and Mary um, threw a fit about that, thought that uh, Mrs. Ord was flirting with her husband, was trying to take him away. Uh, Julia Grant tried to calm her down, uh, and she flew at Julia Grant, too, and uh, denounced her, said that she was uh, ambitious to take her place in the White House. Uh, and one of the consequences of that on April 14th, I think, was that uh, Lincoln had originally invited General Grant and Julia Grant to join him at the theater that evening, uh, but Julia did not want to have anything more to do with Mary Lincoln, and so they decided instead to go to New Jersey to visit their children, and so Grant was not present in the box when Booth shot Lincoln. And forever thought he might have been able to Yes. See. Yeah, I think he felt some sort of lingering guilt at not, so. having, mm -hmm. not having been there. Or maybe it was guilt of going to New Jersey, I don't know. But I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think the main reason Lincoln decided to go back to Washington on April 8th, I think it was, right. 7th or 8th, it was that uh, Secretary of State Seward, who was the senior, basically the senior official of the United States government back in Washington when Lincoln wasn't there, had been thrown from his carriage and severely injured, and Lincoln decided that he had right. better get back. Uh, he had sent Mary back before that yes, she had gone to recover, and then she was back. And that takes us to an important moment. Um, the uh, this is a scene of, a, of one of the last war conferences of the Civil War, um, ironically called the Peacemakers. You see the rainbow breaking out in the distance there symbolically. Peace is at hand. General Sherman is lecturing. General Grant is listening. Lincoln in that famous pose that was later adapted for a large painting that hangs in the uh, state dining room and Admiral Porter. So what are these discussions about? People get very nervous when there are conferences these days and negotiations, but what is Lincoln saying? I should tell, explain to everyone, people always ask, why is General Sherman the one who is uh, doing the talking here? And that's because it's not a rank issue, it's the fact that he knew the artist and the artist wanted to give him <laughs> the, the dominant position in the painting. Doesn't mean much in war terms, but tell us about the conference and what Lincoln and Grant are deciding, because they're the deciders. Well, for a start, one of the things they're discussing, of course, is kind of the, the beginnings of reconstruction policy to follow the war. What kind of terms should we be giving to the former Confederates now that it appears virtually inevitable that the Confederacy w was going to die and, and quickly? This has been on Lincoln's mind for some time beforehand. I don't know how much of his feelings he'd shared uh, with Grant uh, prior to this, 
but it's there's a, there's a famous story that supposedly Lincoln told Grant, let him up easy. And I don't know if that ever was really said or not. My guess is it's apocryphal. But nevertheless, that may be somehow or other the sense of that portion of this conversation, which is how do, are we going to deal with these people? What kind of surrender terms are you going to be authorized to grant? And this, of course, will become a, a, this will become a, a great object of contention when Sherman accepts the surrender of Joseph E. Johnston's army and, in fact, considerably exceeds what Lincoln had suggested to them were the, the terms that they were allowed to grant. I think they're also talking about the strategy to close out the war. Sherman had come up from um, his army, which was uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina at this time, late March, 1865. Uh, Lincoln was quite, was quite concerned about Sherman's absence from his army and because he wondered whether um, Johnston might uh, decide, who was now commanding the Confederate troops in North Carolina, might, might decide to attack Sherman's army while he's away, but we know Johnston never made decisions to do anything like that. Uh, but they're talking about uh, uh, Sherman is going to continue pressing toward uh, Virginia. Uh, Grant's going to continue to nail Lee down. Uh, they're going to try to squeeze what remains of the Army of Northern Virginia between them and bring this war to an end. And they're talking about the strategy right. to do that. It's a war conference as it's, well as a peace conference. It's a war conference as well as a peace conference. And, of course, if you do close out the war, then what happens <coughs> after that? So they did talk about that. And, it, and, and, and Lincoln is, is making a case for the most generous treatment of the defeated Confederates as possible. And I think Sherman took that too literally when he, uh, a month later, uh, offers um, too generous right. uh, peace uh, terms for the Confederates. I think the story, Lincoln, that's recorded in one of the memoirs, either Sherman's or Grant's, is that let him up easy is the one that's not recorded, but is in the in the, well, in that's the vocabulary. What he, he told uh, General Godfrey Weitzel that when he went to Richmond. Right. Uh, Weitzel asked him um, in Richmond on April 4th, uh, what should he do with the people of Richmond? And, uh, and Lincoln said, well, if I were you, I'd let him up easy. Right. Well, we, we, we will get to Richmond, I hope. Um, Lincoln tells an ethnic joke, actually. He says it reminds, that this issue reminds me of the story of the Irishman who gave up drinking. And uh, later, um, he, uh, he decides to have a lemonade, and he says, why don't you put some liquor in the lemonade, unbeknownst to myself? It won't be like falling off the wagon. I can't believe he told the story to Grant, of all people. No, probably not. And then Lincoln says... That's why Grant looks kind of sad in yeah, the picture right. there. You'll know. And Lincoln says something like, that's how I think you should treat Jefferson Davis. Let him get away unbeknownst to myself. And he it, does it in the di dialect. No, I'm sure it's accidental. But in that, in that picture, I think it's, it's rather eloquent of the nature, at least, of the two generals. Grant is a quiet man who listens... He's not a council of war man. A council is a war, don't fight. He listens to opinions, then makes his own decision. And there you've got Sherman lecturing. Sherman, this man from whom ideas just spring electrically like a Tesla coil out of his head. Yeah. Sherman was a motor mouth. Yes, oh, yeah. he was. Wow. So he, that bring, we, we have to get to Five Forks. <coughs> Grant just moves forward. Lincoln maybe says he doesn't want there to be a battle. And um, he breaks... Lee's line, and we have these, uh, I'm going to skip here because we need to get to Appomattox desperately. Custer and Pickett, those familiar faces uh, with Sheridan 
uh, on the Union side, some pretty famous folks engaged in these battles. And then Lincoln, as Jim said, visits uh, Grant at Petersburg. This, of course, is not Lincoln and Grant, but Daniel Day-Lewis and Mr. Harris. I can't remember his first name, but uh, pardon? Jared Harris, very good. Um, and Jefferson Davis, who finds out uh, while he's in church that he'd better get out of Richmond. And then this astonishing story on April 4th, 1865, just 150 years ago, just a few days ago, Abraham Lincoln indeed goes to Richmond virtually unannounced. Stanton doesn't want him to go. And he's greeted jubilantly there by the African-American population who are literally set free by virtue of Lincoln's arrival under the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation. I, I went over this incident carefully when I wrote the book about the press, and I find it a little hard to believe that this happened completely spontaneously. I don't know how you feel about it, but um, I think that the journalists who were in the vicinity went over to to folk working on the dock and said, that's Abraham Lincoln. That's your savior. Sort of, it, it started that way. But one of those journalists was black. Yes, he Morris was. Chester, who wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I think it was the Inquirer, the Bulletin. And he was and writing he was, about- He was there. He was writing about the slave pens in Richmond. Yes. He switched to this story. He wrote the only contemporary account of this event. Actually, people wrote about it later, um, including Porter, I guess. Yes, and Porter made up a lot of Exactly. <laughs> then Lincoln goes on this carriage ride later. This is rather an exaggerated scene of smoke billowing out of a shattered house and the white population as enthusiastic as the black population, which certainly didn't, didn't happen. And there's an interesting little sidelight that grows out of this. We'll probably get to it later, perhaps, about... Uh, the business, uh, the old myth of Jefferson Davis being captured wearing a woman's dress trying to, trying to escape, mm -hmm. which, of course, is not true at all. He was wearing you know, a twin set and some pearls, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but I've found one letter from April 3rd, 1865, in which one Union soldier says, it is said that Jefferson Davis fled the Capitol wearing a woman's dress. Now, of course, it's not true. But what it shows is the, is the mindset of, of the, the uh, triumphant soldiers entering Richmond who are now prepared to start to demonize, or even more demonize, but especially to, to denigrate the Confederate leaders. They're receptive to a rumor like that, even though it didn't, it didn't get any traction in Richmond. But a month later, when it appears again, the whole North is ready to absorb it. So, so, so Grant writes this famous letter after Sailor's Creek and one last thrust and says, I'll read it, the result of the last week, this is Grant to Lee, must convince you... To, to, to Lincoln. Grant... Oh, I see, you're not talking... Oh, I'm no, I'm sorry. getting... I'm trying to get us to Appomattox yeah. so we don't have to have a sequel in a week. <laughs> the result of the last week must convince you of the hopelessness of further resistance on the part of the Army of Northern Virginia in this struggle. So how does Lee react to that, that proud man? Lee reacts essentially, I think, by trying to negotiate. 
the, the back story is that Lee has been somewhat involved with a few other leaders in Richmond, the Secretary of War, the Assistant Secretary of War, in trying to persuade Jefferson Davis to accept some kind of a surrender short of being defeated, because if they do that, they might have a better chance of getting better terms of peace. It's essentially sort of trying to begin a Confederate take on Reconstruction. Uh, Lee's a part of those discussions and then, then backs out. But I think you see again in this correspondence that Lee's saying, well, things aren't that bad yet. But what would your terms be? And Grant says, my only terms are this. And Lee writes back, kind of pretending to be dumb, says, well, things aren't that bad, but I'd still be interested in hearing your terms. And he refers to the Confederate forces under my command. Lee is now general-in-chief of the entire Confederate army. So the Confederate forces under his command are all Confederates everywhere, except the Navy, which no longer matters. And I think that is Lee subtly trying to negotiate for something better in this agreement with Grant. And in fact, he brings it up again the, the day after Appomattox, but I'm getting ahead of us now. We'll show that image, too. So this is the McLean House in Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. Um, Ken Burns' script said that Mr. McLean had a, uh, a farm at Bull Run and uh, moved to Appomattox to get away from <coughs> the fighting. And his, that great conclusion, the great punchline in the uh, PBS series was that the war began in his backyard and ended in his front parlor. I presume it's true. Yeah. It is yeah. true. And so they meet. What is the, Jim, you start and then Jack, but what is this, I mean, Grant remembers Lee from Mexico, but this is, the, what is the first meeting like? How tense is it and? Well, there, there, there is a great deal of tension, I think. And they engage in small talk with each other for a while to try to break the tension. Uh, Grant does tell Lee that, uh, yes, I remember you from the Mexico War and, and Lee, uh, he should have told a white lie. I know. He yes. said, yes, I remember you. But he said, instead, he said, I'm sorry, I don't remember you from the Mexican War. <laughs> right. uh, uh, and they, they talk about old times in the army and so on. And it's finally Lee who said, well, maybe we ought to get down to the business that brought us here. And so Grant sits down and uh, writes out his terms. Uh, and, and he said later that when he f put pen to paper, he didn't know what he was going to say. Uh, and it, you know, it kind of flowed from his uh, mind as he, he, he basically made it up as he went along. But it turned out to be quite generous terms, uh, offering to parole uh, all of the Confederate soldiers if they took the oath uh, not to um, uh, uh, take up arms again until formally exchanged. Well, that was just a, a formality because clearly the war was going to be over. Uh, they would go home. Uh, and if they... Um, behave themselves, uh, they would be free to, uh, to uh, function as, as uh, civilians and to, de depending on whatever terms were offered by Congress, to become citizens of the United States again. And, and Lee then explains to Grant that in the uh, Confederate Army, uh, members of the cavalry and the artillery owned their own horses. And uh, could they take them home? Uh, rather than give them up the way they would have to give up their, their weapons and their flags. 
And uh, Grant says, all right, uh, I know that uh, most of them are farmers, many of them are farmers, and they need these, their animals to uh, put in the crop, so I will uh, allow anybody who claims ownership of a horse to take him home with him. And Lee thanks Grant for his generosity and said this will have the best possible effect on our people. Their state of mind is interesting as well that day. Uh, Grant, of course, is on record as stating that he had a headache uh, that day and that after the, the surrender, he actually feels a little depressed. Uh, people around Lee that day and for the next couple of days will describe him as being distracted and depressed. I mean, clearly the weight of the responsibility of what he had to do was bearing down heavily on him, a man who's already not, not in great health. So in a way, you have, you have sort of two men who are on what ought to at least be a very happy occasion for Grant, are uh, really feeling kind of subdued. So I'm, while I show a few more of these images, those of you who want to ask some questions, I encourage to come up to the microphones while I, I just want to go through these quickly. I did a lot of work on these about 20 years ago, <coughs> eight years ago. So this may have been Lee's finest moment in many ways, but in it, I, my view is that these, this extraordinary number of images elevated Grant to equal status with this iconic general. This is a rather silly print of a Confederate weeping in the doorway as the surrender terms are signed. Here is Lee signing in a rather inflated parlor. This is a famous, the most famous print of the surrender scene. All of this furniture was completely emptied out by the Union afterwards. This is the meeting on the day after when Lee and Grant did meet, and no one is quite 100% certain about what they talked about. But because they rode out and because Lee allegedly was under a, in an apple orchard when he decided to surrender, some of these scenes became quite grand and outdoors, even though they weren't. So here we have... Lee, Grant presenting the terms to Lee under an apple tree. And here about 100,000 soldiers there to watch the scene. Don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else exactly. but me. And I, I'll leave you with this slide and then go to the questions. This is, I still say slide. Um, this is a, the copy of the surrender terms that was owned or presented by Grant. He used a manifold, a sort of a primitive carbon paper device to make simultaneous copies. And he gave this copy later to the man he had asked to draft it, but he was sort of unable to do it or to take it down, Colonel Eli Parker, supposedly he, who was a Seneca Indian. When Grant left, when Lee left the room, he shook hands all around with the Union generals, the staff, um, not Robert Lincoln, who was shown in the film. He was outside. But when he got to Parker, he sort of reared back Jack, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but my version of it goes that he looked at Parker and sees a person of color and then realizes he's an American Indian and says, well, at least there's one American here today, one real American. I'm glad to see one real American. One real American. Here. And Parker <laughs> says back to him rather audaciously, General Grant, today we're all American. General Lee. Today. General Lee. We're we are all, all American. Now we are all American. And this was the copy that Grant gave to uh, Colonel Parker. So let's go to questions. We have, let's start on this side for once. Uh, Tell us your name and then give us your question. My name is Mark. I have a uh, question about <coughs> General Lee. 
Um, it was stated that he resigned from the uh, army because he didn't want to take up arms against Virginia. But uh, did he have the option of resigning and not taking up arms against the North, uh, for whom he'd uh, taken an oath of allegiance? And in that regard, were there any Southern officers who resigned from the army and sat out the war rather than fight against the North? Uh, Lee certainly had the option of not going over to the Confederacy. Uh, but I don't think it ever entered his mind that, that he wouldn't. Again, because he now had to defend Virginia from his point of view. As to others who resigned and just set out the war, I suppose there were some, but I can't think of any. Yeah, I can't think of any either. I think there probably were, um, but not many. There were some who refused to resign. George Thomas, of course, being the most famous. Uh, and he stayed loyal to the United States Army and became one of the best northern generals at the uh, cost of alienating his family, who never spoke to him again. Jim. I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. I've had the pleasure over the years of seeing you gentlemen on C-SPAN uh, at respective years talk about the man of the year of 61, 62, 63. My question to the three of you is who is the man of the year in your opinion, each of your opinions, in 1865? We know who you think it is. <laughs> By virtue, you know, I've, I've said, I think I've said this in one audience and they all turned on me. But for those of you who remember Time Magazine's Man of the Year competitions, Hitler was the Man of the Year several times because of what kind of territory he was amassing and the hideous changes he was bringing to the European map. So in my view, Booth is the Man of the Year because he deprives the country of the man who might have guided Reconstruction more successfully. Well, Booth's just, act certainly had a bigger influence on 1865 than any other single event. Yeah. There's no question about that. Appomattox was going to happen anyhow, but uh, the aftermath was determined by Booth. Interesting point of view. Let's all turn on him. <laughs> <laughs> they actually have these competitions every year. Have you won any of these? I've lost the one I was at. I lost the one I was at, too. It was 1862, and I, uh, my, my man of the year was David Glasgow Farragut, uh, capturer of New Orleans. And I lost with Lincoln in 64, which is... Uh, I won with Lincoln in 1861. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you had the wrong year, Harold. I had the problem. That's right. <laughs> my name is uh, Nathan Burkhan, uh, Professor uh, Davis. I read your wonderful book. Actually, I read a number of your books. Uh, this one is uh, terrific. Uh, my question is, uh, towards the end of the book, each commander, uh, Lee and Grant, are asked who were their greatest, who were their most difficult adversaries? And Grant strangely mentioned Joe Johnson, and Lee mentioned uh, McClellan. Can you explain the reason why they answered that way? I mean, they, they, they named the yin and yang of the, the, I mean, these Johnston and McClellan are virtually mirror images of each other. That's not a compliment. Uh, it, it is odd. But I think, in Lee's case, psychologically, uh, McClellan is the one general Lee beat every time he came up against him. And Lee's a normal man. He's, he's, he's definitely a man of humility, but he certainly has some ego like everybody. And I think if, in his mind, if he beat the best, even though he didn't win the war, then that means he was, he was a better general. 
Uh, and I, I simply don't think Lee could countenance the fact that Grant was the best there was. And so Lee will very quickly buy into the notion that Grant was lucky, who, uh, whose successes were due to overwhelming numbers. Grant's equally odd. I'm, uh, neither of these men could ever admit that the other was their preeminent adversary. Uh, what Grant actually says is the only general he ever, who ever made him nervous, I think, was Joseph E. Johnston. Which, which shows that Grant... He never actually faced... No, no, which, <laughs> which is what Johnston did with just about everybody, actually. <laughs> uh, when, when, when Grant's encircling Vicksburg, Johnston is presumably building an army that he will do nothing with to try to relieve Vicksburg. And you can see in the dispatches of the time that Grant has some concern about uh, Johnston being a problem <coughs> in his rear. I, I think, I, I think it's, it's eloquent about the human humanity of both of these, these men. Yes. Um, my name is Norman Arnoff. I'm reading a very interesting book on Jefferson Davis. And in my mind, I'm trying to compare Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. And the question I have for you gentlemen tonight, um, how would you compare the relationship that Jefferson Davis has with his generals to the relationship that Abraham Lincoln has with his generals? It's a good question. Want to start it? Well, both of them had uh, uh, a great deal of trouble with some of the generals. We've already talked about the two principal ones, Lincoln's problems with McClellan and Davis's problems with Joe Johnston. Um, and I agree that they are mirror images of each other as generals who wouldn't fight, and therefore their commanders in chief um, couldn't couldn't really um, uh, deal with them. I think the main difference is that uh, Lincoln uh, fired his generals, but there was no personal an animus in that. He re he remained. Uh, um, uh, on 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 good terms with them, or at least uh, did not uh, criticize them uh, sharply or publicly. Uh, but Johnston, I mean uh, Davis, uh, grew quite bitter and even hostile toward uh, Johnston and uh, Beauregard, uh, the two generals that he had the most trouble with. Uh, and he did fire Beauregard. Uh, Johnston took himself out of the war. Uh, initially by being wounded, but then later when he came back, uh, Davis did fire him in 1864. Uh, but there was a real animus, I think, in Davis's relationship with those two generals, whereas Lincoln, um, there was not an animus toward McClellan or toward Burnside or toward Hooker, the ones that some of the people, he, or Pope, some of the generals he got rid of. I think Davis, among other things, couldn't separate his own ego from the, uh, the position he held, which, whereas Lincoln, who I'm sure had a powerful ego, was able to set it aside, keeping his eye on a, a goal much more important than, than making himself feel good about himself. Davis, throughout his life, really only got along with sycophants, for the most part. Yes, men. And, uh, and that's why he got along so well with Braxton Bragg and other great Confederate luminaries like that. <laughs> um, but people like Johnston and Beauregard would not knuckle under. And so Davis's response was to lecture them. Well, my two cents on the subject would be that, I mean, Davis comes from a position of 
military service and he was Secretary of War and he <laughs> felt he knew as much as his generals and should have been the commanding general and all of that. Lincoln, of course, gets to the point after Gettysburg where he says, if I'd gone up there, I'd, I, I might have whipped them myself. So he develops sort of a military ego and I mean, I, to me, the major difference in the way they deal with generals is that Lincoln progresses into a more commanding figure by reading um, books about military strategy and educating himself astonishingly and with great sophistication and presiding over joint command ventures and things that I don't think he knew about in 1860 mm -hmm. or 61. Whereas Davis gets stubborn, as you say. And uh, um, anyway. It is, it's a great topic. I think you've written a little bit about it uh, oh, yeah, yes. in your day. <laughs> yes. my, name is, my name is Joseph. Uh, first of all, Professor McPherson, thank you for Battle Cry. It was a real treat for me. Uh, the generous terms that Grant put down for Lee to uh, contemplate, how much was it, if there's any evidence, that it was influenced by the Brotherhood of West Point from soldier to soldier? Well, I think that's certainly part of it, but I think it was also influenced by Lincoln and by Lincoln's um, having made it clear that he didn't want uh, a, a vengeful peace, uh, that he wanted to pay, pave the road for the return of um, Confederates, uh, especially Confederate uh, soldiers, uh, to their allegiance uh, as easily as possible. And Grant absorbed that, I think. And it's worth pointing out that there's not one political word in it. Nothing in it deals with the, the political status of these men once they've surrendered or of Confederate leaders afterwards. It solely deals with the surrender of this army and getting those men to go home, which was really all that Lincoln had authorized mm -hmm. his generals to deal with. Everything else remained in his hands. With regard to this, oh, I'm Ed. McLaughlin, with regard to the decision of Lee to surrender, can you differentiate between military strategy and human empathy? And I've got one other curiosity. What states, what units made up the most of Lee's remaining bedraggled troops? Well, uh, this, what states uh, made up the majority of the troops in the Army of, of the Army Virginia? Of at the surrender. At the end. At the end. At the end. Well, it was uh, Virginians and North Carolinians, uh, but virtually every uh, uh, Confederate state was represented in the Army of Northern Virginia. There was even one Arkansas regiment. And the uh, empathy versus strategy? <coughs> uh, I think in Lee's case, it was simple necessity. He had nowhere to go. Lee intended to continue moving south through Danville and on to North Carolina to join forces with Joe Johnston. Still hoping, I think, not to win the war, but to have a sufficient force there uh, at hand to bargain with the Union for better terms uh, for the end of the war. So I don't think empathy is entering into it with Lee's decision to surrender yet. He simply had nowhere to go. Thank you. Yes, sir. My name is, my name is Jonathan Peel. Uh, reverting to the earlier question, how do you think uh, Reconstruction might have played out and might be playing out today if Lincoln had survived? That's all yours, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've only been asked this question about 4,200 times. <laughs> um, very briefly, let me say that the years from 1865 to 1868 would have been much different. 
uh, as Congress and the President tried to hammer out the terms of Reconstruction and the rights of the freed slaves as part of Reconstruction, uh, there was a complete breakdown uh, between President Andrew Johnston, Johnson and uh, Congress to the point where in 1868 the House impeached and the Senate fell only one voice, vote short of uh, convicting Johnston of, and removing him from office. The atmosphere in Washington was poisoned uh, by this conflict between Congress and, and the President. Uh, I think that Johnston, Johnson, I keep saying Johnston because <laughs> we're talking about Joe Johnston, Andrew Johnson, uh, Johnson's uh, resistance uh, to every effort by Congress to uh, formulate a policy for reconstruction, especially protection of the rights of the freed slaves, uh, encouraged Southern resistance to congressional policy because after all, they had the President of the United States on their side. That never would have happened if Lincoln had remained president. I think that <laughs> while there were, t there were tensions between Lincoln and Congress on the issue of reconstruction, uh, they were in the process of working <coughs> that out and I think would have worked it out. And the process, uh, I think, uh, in the South would have been less uh, violent, uh, less polarized, uh, and probably the process uh, would have worked out better if Lincoln had remained uh, as President of the United States. It's worth, I think, extending from that a little bit to when Grant becomes President. He makes fairly sincere efforts to try to, to follow something like the course that Lincoln had set out. It's certainly Grant who, who pushes through and supports the 15th Amendment, among other things. And interestingly enough, one of the first people Grant invites to the White House is Robert E. Lee. Grant takes office in March of 1869, and Lee comes to visit in, in April. And they have yet another of these difficult meetings where they're both ill at ease. But what Grant wants to talk to Lee about, as near as we know, Lee actually gave a newspaper interview the day afterward, is trying to enlist Lee's support as the most influential man in the South to get on board in publicly supporting a new constitution for Virginia and a moderate candidate for Virginia's governor. Uh, Lee declined. He did not wish to step into the public arena, though in fact that constitution was passed and that governor was elected. And so Virginia at least escaped a fair bit of the military occupation of Reconstruction that took place thereafter, not all of it certainly. But Grant, Grant didn't have the, the, the managerial or interpersonal human skills uh, uh, that Lee had and he, uh, that Lincoln had, or that Johnston had. <laughs> and it, it wasn't able to, to bring, about, bring it about. I mean, I think one indication, and not a bad place to end, is this visit to Richmond uh, five days before Appomattox. And I show you Thomas Nass' picture again. At a certain moment, uh, in this, at this event, um, an elderly African-American man doffed his hat to Lincoln, according to two reports, and Lincoln tipped his hat to this man. And according to a Boston reporter, that one small gesture upset the forms, laws, customs, and ceremonies of centuries. Mm. Whether Lincoln could have extended that sympathy to um, what Jack calls his managerial, using his managerial ability to affect a different reconstruction is, of course, an imponderable, but we will ponder it because it's soon going to be the sesquicentennial of reconstruction. 
And uh, then we will reboot and have other discussions. But um, after Appomattox is the subject of our next get-together. For now, we thank you. We thank our guests. Yeah.